1: My guest this week is barrister and legal commentator Stephen Barrett. Stephen, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, hello. Pleasure to be here on such an incredibly hot day.
1: Yes, it it certainly is very hot. And thank you for coming on. Now, we'll start with the Northern Ireland Protocol, because this has been a a real source of contention in post-Brexit trade since its implementation. Can you just explain for us what the protocol is and why there have been so many issues around it?
0: Yes. So, in its essence, the protocol exists because the EU decided. Well, I'll be even clearer. So, at the beginning, once you had the referendum vote, there were two ways of the United Kingdom leaving the uh, European Union, and there was a case called uh, Miller One that established that whichever of the two ways was used, it would require an act of Parliament. And that's right. We were, because we had when we joined the EU. We brought the the uh, type of international law that is the EU into our law by act of parliament. So what we did was we if you if you think of international law as being like a big C, mm-hmm. we took out a the, the bucket worth that is the EU and we put it in our on, on our land in our legal system. And we did that by an act of parliament. That was, that was the bucket. So to get rid of it, to set it free, to put it back in the sea where it's, and, and to, to, to make it leave our land, we needed to get an act of parliament uh, to, to change that. There are then two ways actually, and this was identified by one of our best um, and certainly most popular uh, judges ever, Lord Denning uh, in the 1970s. There was, there was another way of doing it. We could have just repealed that act and then ended the treaty. But uh, a political decision was made by the government to not do it that way. They decided that what they would do is go into the treaty itself and use the, the treaty as a, the treaty had its own rules, its own system for getting out of the treaty, and that that itself was quite new. At the beginning of the EU, uh, it didn't have a th- there wasn't a way to leave it because you didn't nobody had ever needed a way to leave it. You you would have got got rid of it the, the Lord Denning way, the traditional way, which is you just you just uh, un- untether the law the international law from our law, you unincorporate it, and then you end the treaty by act of government. But uh, over the years, the European law had changed and the treaties had changed. And one of the novelties of the Lisbon Treaty, um, which I think is about 2007, one of the novelties of that was that it had this Article 50, this way of leaving the uh, European law under European law. And a political decision was made by the May administration to use Article 50. Now, there was then, once you do that, um, and I, I hope all listeners are, are, are vaguely aware of Article 50 and they've heard mm. of it, they should, they can Google it. They can go and look at the text and the words. And because I'm very into law, and I like to highlight that, that law is made out of words, that's, all, that's, all, that's what we're doing. Mm. It, it can be very rewarding to go and look at the, the words of, of, of Article 50. Now, the EU took the view that the way Article 50 is written required a two-stage process to leave. Hmm. That is an interpretation of Article 50. I'm not sure how convincing, I was never particularly sure at the time, how convincing or how essential that was or if that is even the right reading of Article 50. Article 50 is quite short and it's not really really very um, easy to interpret. But the uh, May government Agreed with the EU interpretation that there needed to be a two-stage process, two, two treaties to leave, rather than than one treaty to leave. And the Northern Ireland Protocol, what we call what we call the Northern Ireland Protocol, or what is the Northern Ireland Protocol, is in that first treaty. That's the uh, the pro- it's, it's the Northern Ireland Protocol is a protocol but that just means an, the word protocol just means an attachment. It's like an attachment that comes at the end of the document. So the Northern Ireland Protocol is in that first uh, treaty, the treaty by which we we left the European Union, and uh, there were then political arguments about why it was necessary. The EU believes it is necessary to have custom checks in order to protect its single market. The Irish government and the British government believed that there should not be a border on the island of Ireland, because that has historic troubles. Now, I'm not going to take a position on either of those uh, political positions because those were political positions, just explaining what they were. But those, that's anybody interested in, in following my line, which is the, the line between politics and law, should know that that, that those are definitely on the politics side. And that's how the protocol arises.
1: So this protocol has effectively placed a border down the Irish Sea and created a a type of internal border within the UK. Now, do you think this is actually a breach of the Acts of Union, which founded the UK, which is a claim that many on the unionist unionist side have claimed?
0: Well, there was a bit of case law on that. Um, and I think that the, uh, the court dodged that question. What the problem with it as an argument in law is that they're trying to argue that there are sort, that some statutes. So what Parliament does is Parliament makes acts of Parliament. And they are law, that's how parliament makes law. They also make statutory instruments, which are a sort of secondary type, but they're a secondary type of act of parliament. It, it's through these acts of parliaments, what I call statute is how parliament makes law. And they are what bind our, our country. They, they are what bind us all. They are our law. And what the argument that, that was tried to run was that some of these acts of parliament are so special so constitutionally special that they can't be interfered with. And my understanding is the court has rejected that as an argument. The court had said, no, 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 no. All statutes are equal and statutes can and do repeal each other. At, at the heart of it is um, is a con- conception that, that is, is core to our constitution, which other constitutions don't have. At the heart of our constitution is the ability of parliament to do anything. We call that the sovereignty of Parliament. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a huge and colossal amount of power. One of the, it's why voting matters. It's why MPs matter. Um, it's mm-hmm. why learning what a statute is matters because they, they could put anything in one and it could seriously alter your and my life. You know, there's, there's all sorts of things they could put into these, into these um, uh, documents. So it's, it's why they're important. Mm-hmm. But that absolute power that every Parliament has leads to knock on um, parts of the constitution. And one of them is that no um, government can bind a future government. Mm -hmm. And that is true. And what we're doing at the moment, post-Brexit, and I'm writing articles on this and sort of pointing it out rather gently, um, because I don't, don't always get the, the politest of, of response immediately. But what I'm sort of gradually doing is reintroducing people to our constitution because it's been forgotten. And it was when, when we were inside the EU, it was having a very different relationship with itself. It was being, because the EU conception of what a constitution is was, was, uh, was in, in odds, in tension with our concept of a constitution. When you take that away, that pressure, if you like, that sort of um, body sleeping on the bed, the mattress is springing back. And Oops. concepts like this are, are being revisited and rediscovered. So what those people who wanted to argue that there were constitutional statutes, statutes that trump other statutes, What they bumped into was the fact that that's not true because no parliament can bind the future parliament so all the acts Mm. of parliaments are equal so if a new one comes along and says changes the old one well then it's changed the old one and that's that's just our way of doing things and that um might be something i'll return to in your questions because it Mm. Lord we have an incredibly intelligent man as the president of our Supreme Court at the moment truly brilliant lawyer I mean they're just exceptional and there are a number of them in the, in the Supreme Court right now and he he is sort of again gently reminding people that that they they've sort of forgotten or fallen out of the habit of thinking about our constitution at all it, it wasn't really necessary I only I uh, just to explain to your listeners, when you do a law degree, you do constitutional law, or I did constitutional law in the second term, and then you're examined on it, and it doesn't really matter for your degree, so a lot of people just sort of go off and ignore it. It's very difficult to earn a living in constitutional law, so, you know, <laughs> the, the only sort of jobs are teaching it, and even the people who teach it almost certainly teach something else as well, and probably specialize in the something else they teach. And that way that sort of at school, PE can be something that, yeah. that sort of a teacher does, but it's not the main thing the teacher mm-hmm. the teacher does. So it was only my um, academic nerdiness, if you like, that mm-hmm. meant that I carried on thinking about and studying and looking at the constitution for the, yeah. the 22 years or whatever or however long it is since I first studied constitutional law. It's not mm-hmm. normal to do. A lot of other lawyers, don't do law degrees, they do what's called a conversion course. And on the conversion course, constitutional law is barely touched. And Mm -hmm. then if you're not, you're not going to practice in constitutional law, so why on earth? would you spend a lot of time you know, thinking about constitutional law? So one of the reasons that I sort of exist or I'm able to write mm. these, these articles because it wouldn't be very interesting if everybody was doing it. It would be, it would be so obvious that, yeah. that it, I'd, I'd get almost no readers because yeah. you know, in order to be read, you have, to, you have mm. to be saying something interesting. And One of the reasons that I'm in this position is because there are so few people who actually ever bothered to sort of pay attention to our, to our constitution. And now it's coming back That's really important because you have Mm. to know how the Constitution works. And, you know, nobody asked me about the the Northern Ireland uh, cases, but had they, I would have said, well, I don't think there's such a thing as special statutes in this country. I think all statutes are equal because Parliament is sovereign and that's been our established constitutional principle for a very long time. Um, One of the reasons that... um, so, Fraser Nelson, who's my editor at the Spectator, is a friend, and he's he's a friend of mine because he's committed like I am to social mobility, and he um, he's a, a trustee of the Social Mobility Foundation, which is a fantastic uh, charity. One of the reasons that that he sort of thought that I might actually know what I was talking about was that privately to him, when Miller One kicked off. I said, well, the government will lose. It's it's obvious that there must be an act of parliament. And I cited this Denning case from from, from the 1970s and I just said, well, it was clear to me. And it sort of, (laughs) Miller Miller One got a lot of attention and was big in the press. And I wasn't doing anything in the press. I still believed then in staying silent and not speaking because that was how I was brought up as a barrister. We didn't talk to the press. So um, a a number of years ago, I represented quite a, a man who was quite famous at the time. And he was being sued by another man who was quite famous at the time. And so I would take the back entrance into the RCJ in order to avoid the press and avoid the cameras. And, and I thought that that was my role as a barrister. So I was I'm very much in that mindset. I've, I've obviously completely gone against it now. That the it was really the, the pandemic that pushed me over the edge. Um, and I'm obviously now a journalist myself. But um, but back then, I didn't believe in speaking publicly. But I did, of course, tell my mate. So I told Fraser, well, the government will lose one And the government did lose well, one no, no. and we reaffirmed this idea that if you bring international law and I really do think you think of it like a sea because it's not a, it's important it's not a land. It's not mm-hmm. one coherent legal system in its own right. you know France is a legal system, a coherent legal system in its own right. it is mm-hmm. a land and anything that is a coherent legal system in its own right is, is a land. Yeah. International law is a great big sea, and if you take some of international law into your jurisdiction by statute, that's the only way we can do it, by the way, the, 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 um, the reason for this lies again in an old constitutional principle, which is we used to have kings and queens who ran this country, and then we stopped that because that was a very bad idea but they, the kings and queens, retained certain powers, and we call those prerogative powers, and we were okay with them, because they weren't real power um, for a while, and it was sort of in the tussle between the kings and and parliament, and then eventually we went, do you know what, we're not even going to let you have prerogative powers, we're taking those, and those are going to ministers, and they sit with ministers in the government, so although it's a royal power, it's actually with with ministers, Um, and we know that this power to end a treaty, what we call the prerogative to end a treaty, mm. it's with the Prime Minister, It might be with some other ministers as well, and that's a very mm. interesting constitutional question that I would get very excited about and go running around with them, mm. but it's not for your show. But it, yeah. it that power to just end a treaty sits with the Prime Minister, and the Prime Minister, like the old kings and queens, is not able to make law. In our right. system, he cannot make law. So, if signing an international treaty was law in our system, then that prerogative couldn't exist. Mm-hmm. It, wouldn't, it wouldn't be possible to have it with the Prime Minister. It would have to be in Parliament. It would have to be for Parliament to sign international treaties. And so the way we get around it is we say that if a Prime Minister, like an ye olde king, if he signs any old... Treaty, it doesn't matter. We're blind to it. It's not law. Yeah. It's only law once it's incorporated into our system. So I probably got off, got a bit off the question there. Yeah. But, um, just, I, I, just, I
1: no, no, that's fine. And thank you for that very, very thorough answer on, on, on that point. But th- so, in, in response to these, these issues around the, the Northern Ireland Protocol, the, the government has created this idea of having two specific lanes one for um, trade going directly into Northern Ireland from Great Britain, and one for uh, trade going into the European Union. The red lane for directly into Northern Ireland, it would be without checks. The trade going in the green lane to the European Union would have full checks and custom controls. Now, the vice president of the European Commission and the EU's chief Brexit negotiator, Maros Sefkovic, has categorically, categorically stated that this is illegal. Is he right?
0: No, that, that's, I don't see how that could be right. Certainly not in our system. Hmm. I don't want to comment on red and green lanes because it's, it's politics. Right. And it's like the idea of where you put the border and the EU wanting to protect the single market. All those are politics and they're not for hmm. me. What, um, what, is the, what is the difficulty that I have? The reason I'm speaking out and the sort of the fault line that's running through all of this hmm. is that from my conception, from my land, they're doing politics and calling it law and that's, hmm. that's unhelpful from my point of view, from my system's point of view, because in my country, in our country, there are certain key roles, key jobs we have, and those jobs are not allowed to do politics really important that those jobs don't do politics and it's senior civil servants it's it's probably civil servants it's arguably the BBC with its charter and you know it's definitely the one that would definitely I mean all of those are arguments and we've got to return to all of this and it'll probably kick off in the next few years but those are sort of the areas you'd sort of vaguely suspect it and look at. Interestingly, it's never been bishops, as far as I can tell. So actually, mm-hmm. the Archbishop of County has been fully entitled to be as political as he, as he, as he wants, as law. So it's, mm-hmm. he's, he's not in my sights. But mm-hmm. the ones that we all know definitely can't do politics yeah. are judges. And mm-hmm. when I first sort of came on came on the scene or became sort of went public as, as, as a lawyer, I was sort of pointing this out. And people would deny it. People would deny that there were, that there were jobs where you can't do politics. And one of the ways I've been able to prove it is that over the last two years, certain communications have come from judges that leaked. Mm. So we got some, first of all, we got some leaked emails from the Supreme Court and they proved it. They proved that judges are concerned about whether or not they're doing politics and that judges can't do politics. And mm. Lord Sumption said, ah, well then I shall re- I shall resign from the list because I'd like to do, effectively, I'd like to do politics. And they all went, yes, mm. good. That seems sensible. Thank you. Totally agree. And it, because they knew that the line existed. Mm. We then got released under the... Um, uh, certain documents become public after a passage of time, mm. and there was a, a leaked memo uh, about the appointment of of that man, Lord Denning. I mentioned, mm. and that memo identified that there's a line between law and politics. Actually, they were a bit concerned that Lord Denning mm. might sometimes be doing politics, but they couldn't really pin it on him. They weren't, you know, he was a he was a wily old fox. So they they mm. weren't sure, and they sort of they let him through. But the point was that they cared about that line between law and. Uh, and and politics, mm-hmm. um, and that's what that's what I'm doing. So with all of this stuff, red and green lanes, it's nonsense. Mm-hmm. As as because Parliament is supreme and sovereign, as law, law should almost never be saying no to anything <laughs> because it's you know what's a, that's just not the purpose of our law. Our purpose of our law is to exist and then to tell people what the law says. That's what that's what we do. It's not there to block mm-hmm. um, political uh, manoeuvres. The EU is acting as law in a really strange way, because um, the the current negotiator, the previous one was Barnier, the the new one is the the chap you're mentioning. Mm -hmm. They treat him like an agent. okay? and um, I don't know if that makes sense to your listeners, but an agent is somebody who works for me and who's going to do a task that I ask them to do. And I give them a mandate. So I might get an agent to come and sell my house, an estate agent, and his mandate is to sell my house. His mandate is not to feed my dogs. His mandate is is not to go to the shops and buy buy me lots of ice lobbies. His his mandate is whatever I give him as an agent. And he is limited to that. He has that power only. These negotiators have not had a change of mandate for years. Mm -hmm. So they're not mandated to actually negotiate. Mm -hmm. And that is as law that is quite odd and then he, he makes odd statements you know that that yeah. would be illegal it's like well that that isn't clearly isn't um illegal he's made some odd statements today where he's threatening um i think he's threatening to target tariffs at specific constituencies in order to make things politically difficult for a prime the prime minister at an election well, that's clearly yeah. politics yeah. Um, and i'm surprised he has in his mandate the the ability to do that but that that's also clearly not allowed under the the northern ireland protocol I mean, if, 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 if they want the, what, this argument that we keep returning to is can international law have its own rules and what are they? And clearly in some bits of international law do have their own rules. And if he wants to follow the rules of the Northern Ireland Protocol, he has to read the protocol and they have to, or any response by either party has to be proportionate. <laughs> One of the reasons that uh, you can tell if I'm doing uh, law is that I talk about, I give, I explain things, and everything I say could apply to the other side. Hmm. And one of the one of the great um, uh, sort of dramatic moments for me of talking about law in public recently was um, was over Partygate, hmm. where I categorically do not think the con- consumption of a slice of cake at uh, at a work event uh, breached the, the COVID rules. And hmm. one of the nice things now that looks immediately, people are like, "Oh, that looks a bit." It's like, nope, because that's my legal opinion. Mm-hmm. And my legal opinion doesn't just help the Prime Minister and the Chancellor. My legal opinion helps Keir Starmer. Because mm. I also don't think that having a beer... You know, if if Keir Starmer's different from the Prime Minister, it would only be because the work had technically ended. But I'm surprised. Mm. I don't take that view. I take, mm. you know, I've taken... and I've, I've written on this extensively. But because I can do both sides, I hope people are starting to notice that yeah. I'm just doing... Uh, doing law. But no, a lot of what the EU says is is odd. We've ha- I've dealt with them for, for two years, because as a creature of law, they should only say things which are true as mm-hmm. law. But they quite often say things which are not true as law. So when they threatened AstraZeneca, um, I, ha- I wrote about that because I got to write about commercial contracts law, which is exciting mm-hmm. and fun for me, um, and people were interested in reading it. My mm-hmm. relationship with, with politics is that Politics makes people interested all of a sudden in bits of law that I like. And if, mm. if the politics moves into it, I can just go, ooh, tell you about this law. I could have written the article I've just written um, a year ago and nobody would have batted an eyelid because the Northern mm. Ireland Protocol wasn't in play and the politics wasn't there. I sort of wait for the politics to get into the room and then go, ah, oh, here's the law. Um, and that's basically what I'm doing. Yeah. But um, no, they, they, as politicians, can negotiate any settlement mm. and then it can be put into law. The idea that the law is preventing or stopping or blocking any settlement is, is, is simply wrong. The EU's chief negotiator,
1: Maros Stefakovic, has threatened to sue the UK at the European Courts of Justice as, as a result of these proposed changes to the protocol. But given that the UK has left the EU, of which the ECJ is a part of, can the UK effectively ignore whatever ruling the, the Court of Justice hands down?
0: That's a very interesting constitutional question. I mean, what's happened with the protocol? Um, and remember, what this is this was an on, Brexit was an ongoing political negotiation. So by the second, I've talked about the two treaties. By the second treaty, the ECJ is gone, mm-hmm. but there was there was a lot of chat at the time that the ECJ might be in charge of the second treaty. Mm-hmm. The decision to allow the ECJ to be in control of the first treaty was taken before the current prime minister, um, mm-hmm. although fair to say, kept kept by him. The ECJ has therefore an oversight role of the protocol and it, it will, it has a function to do, but yes, whether the UK government then abides by that ruling in our legal system will depend on what the, well, if the, if the current bill before parliament is live, mm-hmm. then the ruling of the ECJ won't be law in my land. Mm-hmm. That, will, that, will put, that will cause attention there will be a, a definite tension there um, the second treaty is governed by arbitration which is more more normal in this sort of in this area treaties didn't used to have internal mechanisms in them They used to just be treaties, but they've now got internal mechanisms and the most common one is arbitration.
1: And over the last 18 months, the European Union has imposed over 4,000 new laws and regulations on Northern Ireland, according to the UK government. Is the European Union overreaching its jurisdiction or is it just simply protecting its own single market of which Northern Ireland is still a partial member?
0: Those are political questions whether it overreaches its remit or not. What Mm. it has is the remit to make law in Northern Ireland. And if there are, I haven't counted them. So if those four, if those that four thousand law figure is right, then that will have been four thousand new laws across the entirety of the EU system. Mm-hmm. And it's fair to say that because of how the protocol works, the nor- Northern Ireland is in their system, mm-hmm. and that's the tension here. That's, I mean, that is an oddity. That is a constitutional oddity. We've certainly never had or never say never with our constitution because it's 800 years old, but um, it's definitely definitely odd for it to be under a different legal system. But if if the EU, it is, and if those laws are made inside the EU, then they apply in Northern Ireland, but they don't apply to to what we might call the rest of the UK.
1: So do you think this standoff between the UK and the EU could potentially place the the Good Friday Agreement at, at risk, do you think there is a, a, an argument that actually that stability that the Good Friday Agreement has caused could be disrupted through these trade disputes?
0: Yes. Yeah, so the Good Friday Agreement is another one of those treaties that's come into our law because this, it's backed up. And the um, it has requirements itself. And what the government is doing, so what I've written on and what I've said, because I've explained our system, is, is how the government don't need to pay any attention to international law, which as law, they don't. But the government has nonetheless agreed it will. And what the government has said is that the, North, the um, Good Friday Agreement is so important that it's threatened now by this, by these checks. And, and they, they do seem to be incredibly intense checks. I mean, I, I've seen some sort of statistic that something like 97% of all checks at the EU border are done between... Britain and Northern Ireland. That seems wow, quite um, quite stressful. One of the, um, one of the legal um, sort of mistakes of the of the, the current negotiator's uh, position is that until he changes his, they keep offering to um, they keep the EU keep this is odd as law. Just stick with it. So the EU keeps saying, "Oh well, we could possibly interpret the protocol differently." We don't need to change its wording. We don't need to, to alter the law. What the law says, we just change how we interpret it. Now, as law, that is just odd. I, when I speak about law, I have to tell you what my interpretation is. I don't get, and when I and on Cakegate, I did, and I was very clear. That this is what I think the words mean. Boom, that's the law. I can't then start enter into a negotiation about that. That's not a negotiated position. I can't go. Oh well, I might change my interpretation if you. It's not, no, that is not what you do. That literally is is against the core of being a lawyer. I mean, sometimes you know, people people accuse barristers of this, but that's not that's not what we do. That isn't. We give our honest interpretation of the law, and so I don't understand that as a place. If if these checks are the checks that are happening now, must be happening because they are lawful now and they must be required by the legal agreement now. Ergo, if you want to change them in any way, the legal agreement has to change. And this is, the EU has a different relationship between law and politics than we do. And it's really coming to an absolute head now that they, they keep calling things law that aren't law, and they do keep threatening to sue people left, right and center. I mean, they do it quite a lot um, in a way that the British government does not, does not do because that isn't the function of law in our, in our system. But, um,